The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Apologies to those listening on listening on tape. I realized I forgot to record until just now. I want to recap very briefly for the sake of those listening in. We had a guided meditation and I invited people to reflect on four pairs of qualities or needs, human needs that might be uh, might come up in your livelihood. Perhaps your livelihood is is contributing to these, perhaps it feels in conflict with these. So where in your life are are do you stand in relationship to these qualities? And the four are belonging and community, self-worth and personal efficacy, or you could just the sense of confidence and personal fulfillment. Healing and reconciliation. Maybe there's some ways in which you're, you're wounded and you need time and space to take care of that or reconciling yourself with aspects of society like racism, sexism. Lots of room for healing and reconciliation for all of us. And the final pair are meaning and direction. What gives your life a sense of meaning and direction? So if you're listening on tape, pause a minute and contemplate those things for, for a little while. And now what I'd like us to do is um, get into pairs, and we'll just spend about ten minutes just sharing a little bit about what came up for you around that. We'll take turns. You can start out with uh, each person having about five minutes to reflect what came up for you around that? And if nothing much came up for you around that, then an alternative question is, what, what values have gone into your decisions about livelihood? What values are important to you in relation to livelihood if these didn't ring a bell for you? So you can speak to either of those topics. Okay? And so uh, just practicing mindful listening while the other person reflects... And it's really for your, again, these reflections are a chance for you to connect with what's really true for you and say what you feel comfortable saying. You know, so give the person, silence is fine, a very spacious time for each of you to just reflect and say what feels appropriate to say. We're not problem solving or fixing or giving advice or any of that in these dyads. All right? So get in pairs, just as conveniently as you're comfortable with. Somebody near you suits you well enough. (laughs) No problem.
Okay, that seems to have been a lively topic. Maybe you could have talked some more, so come on back. Um, Would you see if there's people in there? I think a couple went into the conference. There they come. They're okay. They're here. So how was that? Anybody want to have anything they want to share with the group about that? Somebody's phone? Okay, you're on it. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. It's okay. <laughs> yes, I would like to explore more of what that means, um, the right livelihood. Yeah. All of what it means. Right. Yeah, definition. <laughs> well, we've got two more hours, and you've got a whole month. <laughs> then you've got a whole month, then you've got the rest of your life, so <laughs> we will. Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, I have uh, uh, somebody was. Did you have a. Yeah, please. It was just a thought that came up for me when you were talking about reconciliation in the context of identity. But then for what came up for me was uh, values. Yeah. Like with the metaculture, especially out in the Silicon Valley Bay Area of like harder, faster yesterday. Yes, And yes. being completely incongruous, like living the hippie life and trying to somehow fit in out here. Yeah. And make that part of my business. And so that's something I've been mulling over for quite a while. Yeah, thank but, you. Thank you. That's a great point. Another meaning of reconciliation, reconciling our values. Right. I just really appreciated the four themes that you brought into the guided meditation because those are things that um, I'm really looking forward to today today, because I've been kind of struggling with um, like feeling, uh, you know, wanting to find more meaningful livelihood and wanting it to align with the Dharma. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so there's that. And then also I struggle with feelings of um, belonging or not belonging to my the particular community that I'm working that I'm, you know, in Mm -hmm. my workplace. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Just uh, uh, this goes back to the four points you, uh, about uh, livelihood, right livelihood. You mentioned. Uh, could you repeat the second one, please? The second one is self worth, self efficacy. Okay. You know, some people get a lot of self satisfaction. I mean, in a good way, out of their work. You know, yes, like yeah. they're expressing. Well, that's skill I mean, the work and so I forth. do. I yeah. get a lot of enjoyment out of the work yeah. that I do, and it does. Yeah. Com- it does contribute to the overall community and the human yeah, race. Right, so, yeah. right. Yeah, these these can be all quite positive or all areas of challenge for different times and different situations. Yeah. Belonging and community. Self-worth and personal efficacy. I was throwing in confidence there also. Healing and reconciliation. Meaning and direction. Mm 
Uh, this really um, makes me appreciate, in more so today than other times, n- now in my life I don't have money. Is Livelihood it does not equal money, and I have so much freedom that these things are coming really easy hmm. for me and, and enhance my life now that that struggle with enough to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody over there. Um, for this path factor that relates so much to just kind of like sustaining one's life, then it, um, there's a lot of fear around if the answer is not what I'd want it to be. And I might already have, you know, uh, quite a lot of commitment to what I'm doing. And yet, so then just it kind of strikes closer to home um, how things are going in that way than in a different kind of way, in a practical kind of way. Yeah. Okay, thank you all. Well, I have I have just a few remarks to offer here on the subject of integrating our livelihood with our spiritual practice. You know, I think for me, I know those four those four things. I was getting a lot of maybe personal efficacy in a certain way out of my work, but the others, in some ways, all of them. But also, I, it's what I was looking for. That's what I found when I found the Dharma community and spiritual practice. And then, so I want to talk about ways to integrate what we're doing on the path with our work and ways to hold what we do for our livelihood in all these ways. We just, just earlier, a small group I was meeting with, we had a very lively discussion about parenting and even parenting long after the kids have grown up. You know, it's a lifelong, a lifelong uh, relationship that you keep working on all through your life, and it's a it's a long livelihood. What is that relationship? Um, so just to just to fill you in a little bit on the classical understanding of this, what what the Buddhism per se teaches about this, um, it's really looking for a way. Right livelihood is looking for a way to get yourself fed and clothed that doesn't violate right action and right intention. So we're looking at, you know, not specifically their list, like not dealing in weapons, not dealing in living beings through slavery, prostitution, slaughter, not dealing in poisons and intoxicants. So a list that's pretty much not making your living off of wrong action. And then um, the idea that wealth should be gained by certain standards, that one should acquire it by legal means, one should acquire it peacefully without coercion or violence. One should acquire it honestly, not by trickery or deceit. And one should acquire it in ways which do not entail harm and suffering for others. So, actually that's, you know, that leaves, as with speech and action, that leaves a huge realistic range of ways to make a living, you know. And... Um, the suttas are quite realistic about the need for lay people to make a living, and they're not against accumulating money. In one sutta, there's a list of four grounds for praise in making money. One, that it was made righteously. Two, that it makes oneself happy and pleased with regard to those other 
if it was made in a way that those others mention. Three, that one shares the wealth and uses it for meritorious deeds. Four, that one uses it without being tied to it, infatuated with it, and blindly absorbed in it, seeing the danger and the escape. The danger is if your whole well-being is based on your financial success so far, you might not be preparing yourself in a balanced way for who knows what might happen, right? So we can use the path to prepare ourselves to be ready to face the future, whatever is happening, and we're not attached to this wealth in that way. So those are the classical teachings on, it's usually very short, you know, the, the books have long chapters on everything else and about a paragraph on right livelihood that, <laughs> that says that. So I'm really grateful the way Gil has really expanded the way w- that we look at this and to include everything that we're doing with our time and our give and take with society and those qualities that I mentioned came from a list that he found somewhere. So it seems to me that there's a kind of... Uh, What is the relationship between practicing the path and what we're doing in our livelihood? I remember somebody talked, a teacher some years ago mentioned that for a long time she carried her practice around like a purse or a backpack. You know, it was an add-on to her life, something that she would dip into when she needed something. And that's very different than really totally integrating this with our way of life. So one relationship between your practice and your livelihood might be what a kind of looking back to right view where there's mundane right view and more transcendent right view. In a mundane way, a lot of us have come to this practice for stress relief and so forth. And so, and it's valuable. In that way, the practice supports our livelihood and it's something that we use to stay calm and be able to get through our day. And then maybe the more you practice, at least this is how it was for me, the more it kind of rises to the to the top, like the cream rising, you know, and you begin to have a more transcendent view that in that meaning and direction factor that what your life is about is about walking the spiritual path, the Buddhist path as best you can and developing these factors in your life. And then it's more like your livelihood is what supports you in doing that and it's your monastery, it's the place where you can practice this. We might have some idealistic notion about what living in a monastery would be like, but just ask any monk who lives in a monastery, you know. Huh. It's, about <laughs> it's about working with difficult people and getting building permits done and all the kind of stuff that, you know, that we do all the time. So no matter where you are, your life can be looked at as this is the, this is the arena in which I'm practicing the path. So what becomes is it's more like how we're doing, how we're doing whatever we're doing becomes more important than what we're doing and whether we achieve the thing or meet the deadlines or get the approval or get the raise or the status or all that. How we're doing it is what's really going to integrate our practice. I saw a TV show a long time ago about China and it had an in, a guy in it, I think he had just recently converted to Christianity, but it was so sweet how he was talking about this new factor in his life was like having an oxygen mask on all the time. And that was quite something in Beijing where it was very difficult to breathe at that time. So, you know, it's like this is something that's enabling him to, I just saw this sort of sense of having, it's kind of how I felt at the time about my practice. Like I could go into very difficult environments and know that my priorities were oriented toward how I was going to conduct myself in that environment and what qualities I was bringing to it and not necessarily to how it is at the time. So the more we can do that, we get 
we get more clear on what our own habits of mind are. You can always study yourself. How am I relating to this? How, what's going What am I buying into here? What hooks are being revealed to me that I start to care about things I really do or don't care about? You know, or maybe it's all positive for you and you love it and you can see that this is a beautiful place to work and it's an opportunity for you to really give of yourself fully. We can see what is our behavior contributing to any situation. We're turning ourselves into a good person to work with. You know, and that's only what's going to bring out the best in others. And we're getting to know ourselves. We're getting to trust our sources of intuition and creativity. It may lead to more, more ability to do our job better, more, more fulfilling line of work, if that's what we're looking for. And we can grow in discernment about what is suffering, what is really causing harm, and what isn't. So we can feel maybe less trapped if we feel more worthy and confident that we actually aren't going to go along with something that, that contradicts our deep ethical sense. In the sense that if we would be better off somewhere, some faith that, that, there, that there are other circumstances and other situations that we can maybe find our way somewhere else. So it's really useful to have this more kind of existential point of view to tap into in your work so that that's your primary concern. It really helps to balance this tendency. At, at work we can get so hyper-focused on the, on the deadlines and the what's due and what other people expect of us sometimes. So I'm sure you can look back and remember other projects and other episodes in your life or when your children were a different age, the things that you were so concerned with where are they now, right? It's, it's another way to see impermanence. That, that project, that report, that, that lack of promotion or what your children were doing when they were younger, where is that gone? You know, and yet you put so much clinging and effort perhaps into that. And so you can see if you can bring that into the present. One of my former managers at work used to remind us not to let the urgent drive out the vital. And I think that's really important, where urgency is the name of the game in so many lines of work these days. And what are we, what, how is our vitality being strangled by that constant sense of urgency? One of the teachings in the Buddhism that I find most relevant to life at, at work and parenting is the eight worldly winds. Are you familiar with that one? It's four pairs pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, and fame and ill repute. I've also heard that translated as low status and high status. And we're often, we're just buying into one of those, you know. Yes. Pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and ill repute, or high and low status. And that's that can be the currency, uh, you know, out in out in the world. A lot those winds are blowing all the time, and the question is, are they blowing you over? Are you one of those eight? Is generally what is the hook that we bite into, that we begin to feel like we have to do something that's destabilizing and causing stress. So starting to just recognize those praise and blame is a big one when we're in a, in a social situation. Praise and blame. Gain and loss. Success and failure is another way to put gain and loss. 
These things come and go and they're very much of the conditioned world that is not in our control. We can do our best and then the thing gets done or it doesn't or they like it or they don't. And so these are the factors that we can really practice learning to be free of. So mindfulness, of course, is the main thing that we need to do any of these things. We need to be aware of what's going on within us. It makes everything else possible. Throughout our day, how taking the practice off the cushion into breathing, touch points, coming into your body, feeling your feet on the floor, every time you get a chance to go to the bathroom or something, make it a walking meditation. You know, just slowing down, walking slowly, coming into your body, coming into your wholeness as often as you can during your day. The absorption in screens that many of us have for our full-time life is so difficult. It's, it, it takes us totally out of our body, totally into our mind. So I found it useful to have a practice of trying to notice frequently the space, the space between me and the screen, so that you're not sucked into the screen and living in there, but you're aware that it's a piece of visual information in your field and there's space around it and space between you and it. And the more often you can tune into that, the more helpful it is. And frankly, even if your job is people-oriented and you're counseling someone all day or something, you can, you still can get sucked in, pulled out of yourself and into that interpersonal realm. And it's so good to keep coming back, coming back into your body, feel your spine, really work with body meditation in your meditation time and then see if you can get some short version of that that you can check into several times a day. These factors that we've mentioned um, in the meditation, these four factors that we went into, could come into right intention. In the sense that you can also, these are common human needs, so you might find it helpful to orient around offering these to other people. Consider that all the people that you work with also are struggling or enjoying these four, how these four things manifest in your, in your work or in your family, wherever you are. So what can you offer belonging in community? to those you work with? Can you offer opportunities for other people to experience self-worth and self-efficacy? It's been my favorite thing about being in the kitchen at IRC. I, I, I mostly stand back and I love seeing people come in and discover that, oh, I can cook a meal for 50 people and you know, try to let them do it. And it, they, people enjoy. Oh, look, I have some, some, we don't have an opportunity for just physically fun skills like, you know, making chili for 50 or something. It's fun. And people appreciate that, and I enjoy their appreciation of it. Healing and reconciliation. We can be more sensitive to when our coworkers are having a hard time and, you know, maybe all these general areas like race and gender and so forth, increasing our sensitivity to what's going on with that in our workplace. And meaning and direction you can contribute to especially if you have a little bit of maybe a management role or something, you can, you can contribute to that in some way. And most of all, it's about remembering people, remembering that no matter what you're doing, your chances are you're dealing with people, remembering people in their full humanity and not getting too caught up in the details of getting the particular project done. 
Some of you may know John Martin. He's one of the teachers in our tradition. I used to drive by SFO when it was a few, last decade or so, it was under reconstruction. And I remember thinking, wow, it's somebody's job to manage SFO while they rebuild the whole place. There's a job I wouldn't want. Turns out it's John Martin who had that job. <laughs> and he's now a meditation teacher. <laughs> and he had some great talks online about wise livelihood and how he did that. And he, you know, he was really one of those people who had the Dharma so deeply in him that he was able to bring all these four factors to his workplace and make it a meaningful and satisfying place for people to work. And he has some great talks on that that you might, you might look up. Sharon Salzberg also has a book on um, working, mindfulness at work, or something like that it's called. She's got a lot of good ideas on intention. She says, before a conversation, pause for a few minutes to determine what you would most like to come out of it. This is just right speech. Do you want to be most seen as right or as helpful? Do you want to foster progress or hinder it? What do I want most to see come from this communication? The other party to feel diminished or encouraged? Do you want them to go away or increase their involvement in your project? What do I most want to see as the outcome? Peace or excitement? Ease or stimulation? So these are things you can ask yourself before going into any conversation. And then we haven't got to effort yet. That's the topic for the month after this one. But tuning into your level of effort, when are you, you know, the whole multitasking craze, there's really no such thing. You can only do one thing at a time, and you can switch as fast as you can stay sane and do it. But, you know, looking at that, looking at that as a value that we have, (laughs) as opposed to the value of do what you're doing as you're doing it one thing at a time. Looking at boredom, if you ever feel bored, there are aspects of every job that are boring, paperwork and so forth. That's a chance to really be mindful. If it's so boring that it's not interesting to you, then you have some mental bandwidth to pay attention to your fingers as they touch the keys. You know, you can practice mindfulness of breathing while you do it. You can look at what is boredom. The whole business of hurrying, you know, and rushing. In this uh, online introductory class that we teach, Inez came up with this great little scenario that I, I think I'll read to you. Scenario one, I have a deadline tomorrow, and before the deadline, I have to complete 22 items. I have several hours to do so. This is an important project that many people depend on. Understanding this, I feel determined to do my best in the short period I have. Determination is a feeling of steadiness and strength. It motivates me. I can focus on my tasks. I may or may not finish on time. Okay, that's one scenario. Scenario two. As in scenario one, I have a deadline with 22 items. In this instance, though, I turn my attention to the imagined future, to how short a period of time I have left to accomplish these tasks. Directing my attention to the future triggers fear that I may not be able to finish on time. The fear agitates me. I turn my attention to my tasks, but I feel unsettled and tense. I can't stay focused. My mind rushes back to the idea of the deadline that I might not meet. I imagine the consequences, and that further agitates me. Some of my energy is drained by the stress as I force myself back to the task at hand, trying to suppress the anxiety. I may or may not finish on time. 
Okay? Two ways of approaching a common work situation with a different state of mind. A mind that's constantly, you know, looking at the worst case scenario, worrying, self-conscious, focused on what other people might think, or a mind that's simply able to do what it's doing. And in either case, you might or might not finish. So work is always a great opportunity to really look at your mental patterns and how your mental patterns are causing suffering. And then there's this issue of integrity. Sometimes people face strong issues of integrity at work where they're really asked to sell something that isn't true or lie about something. Sometimes this happens. You know, bill more hours than you're really putting in. There's a lot of pressure out there. I came across this quote from David White, who's a poet and a philosopher. It's it's a kind of strong quote, but I like it. (laughs) To live with courage in any work or organization We must intimately know the part of us that does not give a damn about the organization or the work. We do this not to create a veneer or protection through cynicism, but so that we can meet the powerful structures that inform our existence on equal terms and in real conversation as equals. So that's really inviting you to get to know, you know, your relationship with with the universe, your relationship with the path with your own best interests, with your own heart, in a way that is a strong, is a ballast in your life for the power of big institutions and, and you know, monetary concerns and whatnot to, to try to force you to do something that just isn't sitting right with you. And finally, it's a great area to look at wisdom, view, you know, are you, are you your job? How identified are you with what you do on your job? The whole world of competition and comparison, looking at yourself in comparison to others in competition. Beliefs in perfectionism and control, how much can we really get done versus the uncontrollability of conditions in life in general. And just keep coming back to the right view perspective of keeping suffering in mind, keeping ease with what you're doing, lack of attachment to outcome, putting more of your effort into the way that you're doing it and less attachment to outcome. So those are a few thoughts on bringing practice and work together. I I may be betraying my, my many years in Silicon Valley doing a job that was not all that gratifying to me on those four qualities. I hope many of you love your work and you're in work that's deeply meaningful and satisfying. And uh, I hope that is true for all of you, but... I'm a little bit speaking from a more difficult people who find it more challenging perspective. So, any um, where are we in time here? Probably way off. <laughs> We're a little off. Okay. Um, let's have a shorter breakout session. We'll be all right. All right. So let's get in groups of three so that there's more time to go around. Get in groups of three, and then I'll tell you what to do. We're just going to discuss. I'll tell you now. Just ideas for thoughts going around and around on how to better integrate and balance your your dharma practice with your livelihood. Any ideas that what's been said might spark and what you might intend to do to better balance yourself. now on okay so 
Um, we'll have uh, just I just wanted to have a couple minutes to see if anybody wants to share something that came up from that that was meaningful for you. All talked out on that subject. <laughs> Betsy? I have a question. Yeah. Uh, can... Here we go. Thanks. My question is about this, um, the quote, the David White quote that happened prior to our breakout, it, though it, it kind of informs the breakout. Um, as well, and that is when you mentioned that um, identifying that part of ourselves that doesn't give a, a darn about what we're doing. Right. I mean, and that could take different shapes and forms, of course. Um, and and meeting that that part of ourselves as an equal. Yeah. Um, I thought that the as an equal part caught me, and I'm not sure how you interpreted it, or if you um, have insight into how David White intended us to interpret it. Yeah, I mean, he puts it not in the way that we usually put it in the Dharma. So I would say that part of you that's totally not identified and not hooked into your workplace. You know, it's not that you don't care, but you're not buying in the part of you that is that knows that this work situation is impermanent, not who you are, not not me, not mine, not who I am, you know. Mm -hmm. The part of you that's much bigger than that situation. Mm -hmm. And that you have your own karma and your own integrity to answer for and the part of you that really could stand up to, you know, institutional power. And is he making that comment so that we identify with that part enough to engage yes. with the institution? Okay, yes, I understand Yes, I think that. so. Yeah. Or disidentify with I the part see. that's hooked yeah. into the institution enough right. <laughs> so yeah. that we have freedom and that art of looking at something that where you, there is resistance, yeah, um, and disidentification, yeah, and then engaging with it um, from a very wholesome place, yeah, is it? I wish it were the edge of my practice. Yeah, it's a little beyond reach yeah. right now. it's a little beyond. It's a little beyond all of us in different circumstances. You know, it's a so. Yeah, it was a harsh quote, and I don't, you know, I read it because it kind of, I sort of went, whoa, there's something here. But I'm glad you gave me a chance to amplify on it, because it's not about not giving a hoot, you know. It's about giving the right kind of hoot and not, uh, you know, not noticing when you're letting your own uh, integrity, when you're selling yourself out, basically. Well, it's nice to be holding hands with all of you here as we move into this area. Yeah, I mean, it's important. This is a community, you know, that can maybe counterbalance in a way the need we all have for belonging. This is a community that we belong to that has shared values that can, in a way, counterbalance some pressure to have different values. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else? Yes. Let's do, because there are people who listen who are not able to be here. The thing that stood up most to me with the four was not looking internally about a situation of the four factors, but what I can do to create those factors for other yeah. people. Yeah. And I was just remember there was a remembrance on KQED about two weeks ago about this guy Bob Carr, and he was featured in Atlas Obscura, 
and he created this Bob's Crystal Cave out of chicken wire and spray foam. And he had just so much unbridled joy in this interview. I highly recommend hunting it down if you can. And I pulled up the quote from the end of the remembrance. And it may seem strange to suggest that the key to happiness can be found in a spray foam cave in the middle of the California desert. But Bob taught me that every one of us is capable of making beautiful experiences for each other. Ah, beautiful. And so, I don't know, I just thought of that and wanted to share that. Thank you. Yes. Bill. Um, so I thought of a couple things uh, in response to your question for us to discuss. One of them was um, try to remember that these difficult people that I'm dealing with in my work, and they're mostly not difficult, but some are, uh, are, are in other aspects of life. Most of them have not had the benefit of, what, 17 years of Buddhist study and practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're just um, products of their conditioning environment. And, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, so put, them, put myself in their place. And, and they've got their own stresses yeah. and their own needs, difficulties. Um, just remember that and kind of let everything roll off you. Yeah. Cut, cut people a little bit of slack. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more on work and healing since that was one of the four qualities where when I heard that I was like oh that has like nothing to do with my work which I'm sure it does but if either you have thoughts or if anyone else wanted to share thoughts yeah anybody else have any thing to share on that you do go yeah so um, (laughs) so healing uh, healing and reconciliation. Um, I think that the, I mean, it's something that continues, you know, because there are so many things that happen in our daily lives that I can now discern how to how to be present and at the same time um, make sure that um, I can also use wisdom to 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 have safety for myself. Um, but the way in which I came into the practice was um, looking for for healing of um, suffering in terms of uh, racism and um, homophobia and classism. And I will say that I spent uh, quite some time getting to know that suffering getting to know that, you know, getting to know it, getting, getting to know it in a way that um, I could support myself through the four Brahma Viharas and, to, and, and with communities, different communities in different places that supported me to be where I, where I was at. I didn't have to be any, 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 anyone special. I was just there not even knowing that there was a lot of suffering uh, because of all the internalized um, uh, suffering, oppression that that I felt, so um, I just say I, I would say that um, you know when we integrate our spiritual development 
with our livelihood. When, when we bring it, we incorporate it, it's part, that healing sometimes starts happening even without us knowing. Um, and there's this key aspect of getting to know, acknowledging, you know, practicing, going through the Four Noble Truths. It just gave me a lot of confidence in the practice and in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. No, it's the same thing, really. It, it's recognizing that maybe you do have needs around healing and reconciliation. Sometimes we're so, you know, charging full ahead on our work that we don't give ourselves the space that we need to address some of those things. And some of them can be addressed at work, and some of it maybe needs some more meditation time and more time that's simply, like Bruni was really saying, same thing, to really develop your spiritual practice, you know, Recognizing that you have those needs. And possibly looking for opportunities to offer it at work. You know, that can be healing. Recognizing you're not the only one who's stuffing a lot of stuff down and getting on with your work. It's going on all around you. So how can you, how can you allow for that for others? Okay, let's take a a shortish break. So if you need to use the bathroom, maybe do that early on rather than later on. And we'll get back, we'll try to get back together about 2.30 or a little after.